Well, everybody, thanks for joining us this week. You know you're in for a treat when you hear that tune because it's time for another edition of the Rec Poker Podcast. This is the chats edition of the show where every week we talk to a different luminary in the poker world. We also have our forums edition where we get a little deeper into the strategy that comes out next week. Uh, but I'm so glad to be here. I have the best job in the world. If you don't know who I am, my name is Jim Reed. I'm Blufsterini in the home game and at Rec Poker Jim on Twitter. While we still have a Twitter, you can check me out there. Um, but it's, I'm just one of the people involved here at Rec Poker. I have to thank our sponsors, the Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino. They're a fantastic group that have been behind us all the way since day one. And of course, I've got to thank our Wrecking Crew members. Um, I'm just the guy they give the mic on Mondays. It's a whole group that makes the magic here at Wreck uh, Poker happen. Um, and we're actually going to introduce our very newest Wrecking Crew member, uh, Joe Coolis. So, uh, Joe, welcome to the uh, Wrecking Crew. And why don't you tell the folks what your handle is in the home game and where they can get a hold of you? Okay. Um, my name is Joe Coolis. Um, my handle in the home game is Elvita11. Um, but you also can get a hold of me currently. The best way is probably on Twitter at uh, Joe Cool with a K PhD. He's a lot of fun over there on Twitter. He's also fun in our strategy segments. He's going to be bringing his own uh, study group uh, to the table in 2023. And if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, happy almost new year. It's December 30th, and we are all excited to close the book on 2022. I personally just cannot wait to see what the new year has in store. And we are closing it out with a bang. Um, I will say, uh, if you want to find out more about me and the rest of the Wrecking Crew, you can go to rec.poker slash crew. Um, but enough about enough about us bums. We've got Nick Howard on the show today. So I'm extremely excited to be welcoming Nick Howard onto the show. Uh, Nick, thanks for making some time today and happy holidays to you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to get into it with you guys. Yeah, well, you um, you kind of know what we're all about here. We were talking just briefly before we uh, got on the air. We're a mostly recreational uh, poker group. Some of us take it very seriously, but we have day jobs. And, you know, this is something that we do for fun. Uh, we kind of measure our success on the felt by how much we're enjoying it. And if we can take some money home at the end of the day, you know, that's it is more fun when you win. I'm sure everyone can agree with that. Um, you've you've really come so far in the world of poker let's start uh i i usually ask our guests to kind of define themselves first so that if listeners haven't heard of you or or if they don't know what you're all about um you've been a player you've been a coach uh you founded this poker detox uh program and company How, where do you kind of place yourself in the poker world these days easiest way to put it is to start from the present and probably back up so Currently, I own Poker Detox Coaching and Training. It is a organization of about 200 privately contracted players. Our mission was basically to offer real coaching in poker to anybody, regardless of their financial situation. Hmm. To date, since we've really taken off, since you guys have probably you know even heard of us, we've done $10 million in contracted player profits over the last three years, which has sort of put us on the map as probably one of the highest performing uh, staking companies in the industry. The reason I went in that direction is what would take us back to the earlier story of my career as a player. So I can give you a brief overview of what led me in this direction. I started playing poker when I was probably 
13, like well underage. Uh, it's the type of thing for me where I'd come home from high school with a couple of my buddies and it was around the moneymaker era and we would sign on poker stars and we would scout the tables and take our shot at three, six, no limit, you know, with our allowance money and whatever we had hustled from the cafeteria card games. <laughs> and that was like a rinse and repeat process for a while. We're like, let's just try to make this thing happen. Clearly a very naive approach, but you know, back then it was just, it was more exciting to just be in the mix of it. I mean, you guys are old enough to know what happened with Moneymaker and how that really put poker on the map. So that's what sort of initiated my career. I think I was, you know, 13, 14, 15 around that time. Ended up sticking with poker, made a whole career out of it, uh, probably twice, I would say. I, I sort of split my career into two phases. I had a decent amount of success up until the time I was like 21 or 22. Then I lost pretty much any everything because I stagnated for a while. Then I built it back again using different methods. And once I approached that second threshold, I was like, I think we really have something here that allows people to approach the career in a more reliable scientific way. And that's really what the inspiration was for the company. It was sort of a passion project to try to reconcile my own struggles as a player which the more I reflected on it stemmed from really not believing like I could look people in the eye and say, I have a reliable career here. This is a reliable career choice. The more honest I became with myself over the years, I think the more conscious I became, the more I recognized that the type of strategies I'm using, the type of rationalizations that I'm analyzing hands from really don't leave me feeling comfortable at the end of the day, if I'm honest. There was a time where I was able to delude myself more so and like hit the pillow at the end of the night and be like, you know, whatever, I did my best today. And I think I, I think I'm playing a strategy that really performs. Then as I started to become more scientific and hang out with more people who took more of a scientific approach to data analysis, which is really what distinguishes our program from anything else at this, at this time. I started to realize that a lot of the thought processes that I was using to talk myself through hands would be virtually inadmissible in a scientific discussion. And when I started to recognize that, it, it really caused me to address myself. And that's what I mean when I start to question, is this a reliable choice I'm making? Am I being responsible here? Because I, I could have done a lot of things with my life and I went into poker thinking, you know, I'm going to prove myself in this path. And I do believe there is skill here objectively, not just because I think I'm better at reading people. Um, now for the live players out there, that is a very valid dimension, but where we train primarily, which is online, you lose that dimension of the game pretty quickly. So you need to learn to rely on other things. And the method that we've built concentrates itself more on the data analysis scraping millions, hundreds of millions of hands of population data from online play, and then working with ex-physicists and quants to basically parse that information, churn it into protocols that say, on average, this is the right play to make when you see these patterns occurring. That was really what I dreamed of having for a method because it was what I lacked coming up. I always felt like I was getting different answers to every hand. And it made me feel very insecure mm. inside in terms of the career reliability. So what data has given us is a stable decision-making process where 
everybody who subscribes to the method can look at a hand history and they can say, these data points are clearly in play. See this pattern? And when this happens, we do this. And when this happens, we do this. And what you're essentially doing is counting data points along the way with a measurement system for being able to evaluate them. Something about that seems to give the types of players that gravitate toward us a new level, a new sense of reliability in the career. And that really was my vision. I want poker players to feel safe doing this as a career. And previously, I wasn't able to find it until I started working with the data-driven method. So that's sort of a roundabout way of bringing us back to the present, which is sort of where we're at now. We use population data analysis to refine methodology in a way that makes decisions systematically reproducible for a player in a poker hand. Now, I know Joe's got a couple of questions about that process itself. Um, I was hoping just to start by kind of taking a, a more newbie look at what that looks like. So um, one of our recent guests, uh, Doc Sharon, um, has been all over Twitter recently. She's involved in your poker detox program. Um, she's loving it. And, you know, she's got a great attitude about poker, a great learning mindset. She's not at all afraid to put the time in, to put the work in. Um, I know she was saying that she recently got to a certain volume of hands that you require before you can kind of start doing some, some analysis. Can you just tell us a bit, sort of like, as someone who's coming into the program, what is their road like? What are the things that they do to prepare for this? And then how does how does your system, um, what does it look like when it's applied in that individual sure. case? So the first portion of our program is called 30-Day Training Camp. It's basically a 30-day sequenced lesson course where you get a manageable dose of content every day for 30 days that sort of acquaints you with how our methodology looks. We decided to structure it in that way because we've learned over the years that a manageable dose of content daily with accountability to a community and also some cool mission prizes attached to it is the best way to keep the ball rolling for people when they're learning something new. So most of our attention was on creating that structure. We put a lot of focus on generating healthy systems of accountability and almost like gamifying the study process because for a lot of people that's the sticking point so the premise of that camp is how do we make studying fun and how do we get people okay with making mistakes because there's going to be a lot of them at the beginning when you're learning a new thing uh, embracing that aspect of it in a safe place alongside new content that is objectively measurable was our first objective. Let's see who's compatible with this even. And that's an important conversation in every single camp. It should probably be something that we are more upfront about even before a player joins, but it's hard to have this conversation unless you have someone sort of on the hot seat and you're able to ask them, you know, why are you really playing poker? What is it that you're really trying to achieve here? Most people will say, I want to get to high stakes. Most people will say that if it's not that it's some variant of that, where it's like, well, I also have a side job. So I'm actually just trying to make some good money on the side and I would be happy with that. But when we start to dig at that narrative a little bit more, we usually find that a person typically has an idea of how they want to go about getting the result that they want, whatever it may be, get to high stakes, make some side money. And that's where things get really interesting because if you look at what most people have in terms of an expectation, 
of the strategy that they'll end up playing that gets them these results. Oftentimes, what you'll find is they have this limit to how much they're willing to change. Mm. When you really poke at it, many people end up telling you, well, what I'm really looking for is a strategy or a training program that meets me where I'm at and doesn't change too much, just lets me keep doing most of what I want to do and fills in the blanks. At this point, I'm usually very kind, but also realistic in saying, what you want probably doesn't map to your objective. And now you have a disconnect in terms of the player's vision for what needs to happen and what actually needs to happen in order for you to get to the result that you say you want. So that's where we come in usually with a kind and grounded addressal of that objective. That's almost always where I start with players. Um, And the players that end up being compatible with our program are the ones that come in and say, look, I'm ready to admit that I believe a lot of things about poker that actually aren't true, especially when you map it against the behavior of the pools. I'm willing to sacrifice what I believe is true in order to subscribe to something that is proven and reliable. And now here's where you get to um, a friction point with the way that we train is that we don't really have a high tolerance for someone who doesn't want to do things our way. And I'm very careful about how I say that. I know that comes off almost militant, but there's a very specific reason for that, that players tend to misinterpret. The reason that we have such specific protocols for the way that we operate, simplified protocols, protocols that don't allow the player to wander all over the game tree as they approach their session. Protocols that say, stay in these lanes, play these lines, use these bet sizings, they perform, and they're practical. That's not because we have an overly controlling attitude about how a player should behave at the table. It's actually much more subtle than that. The reason that it's important to control a player's strategy in a way that narrows, condenses the game tree, doesn't allow them to play so many lines, sizings, is because it actually shortens the feedback loop of that player's career when we're using a data analysis process to give them reports on their play. That's the real advantage of the data-driven strategy is it has found a way to shorten the feedback loops in a career where the feedback loops are actually longer than any other performance arena in the world. Mm. I haven't found one where they are longer. And the downsides of having very long feedback loops is that you can lose your mind in the process of fighting against variance to get back to a normal stretch of luck. Josh Waitzkin, who was a big inspiration for pretty much everything I did in terms of how I organized methodology. He was one of the greatest chess players in the world, and he's gone on to other awesome performance-based talks. He did a podcast with Tim Ferriss three or four years ago where he was asked, what is going to be the biggest breakthrough in financial investment arenas over the next few years? And Josh actually mentioned poker, I think, in the podcast. He said the people who are able to find a way to shorten the feedback loops will prevail. He understood this principle at a core level that speed is actually generated from being able to give clear, decisive feedback on the player's performance, which is something that's very, very hard to find in the poker community at large because you have to be working with data in order to do it in a measurable way. 
So what this ends up looking like is the player plays 50,000 hands. They can submit their database. The engineers plow through it and say, you're missing your targets here, here, here. We can show you where your frequencies are off. Here's a collection of hands that shows you how it manifests in real time. Go make these improvements, play another 50,000 hands, and we'll see how it checks out against the data. That process is what really gives the player that sense of reliability that I haven't seen offered anywhere else, but it's only because I think we were the ones that pioneered data-driven strategies in a way that really tried to foster the sense of safety. So we're a bit ahead of the curve. We try to stay ahead of the curve in it, but there are other uh, training programs and staking programs even that have now adopted this. And I believe it will become more popular, dare I even say the norm, a decade from now, but let's not get too ambitious. <laughs> I want to follow up on uh, a couple of things I heard in there. So um, it, so your program is kind of like, there have been these hybrid staking slash coaching arrangements for a while. I think people have kind of understood that there's a mutual investment that goes on in these situations where people are uh, working together uh, to better themselves and, and each other. Um, obviously, we're a big believer in learning along with other people here at Rec Poker. The the opportunity cost of trying to learn on your own is great. You can learn on your own, but you'll do it faster and more effectively if you get other people involved. Mm -hmm. um, my question is, uh, when you're dealing with data analysis like this, there's always a trade-off between having a, a very large sample size, but then also having a sample that's specific to the uh, user that you're dealing with. So if you work with a, a like a range of students um, how do you kind of tailor their uh, feedback to the games that they might be playing uh, or do you, or is it more about kind of finding a more fundamental or absolute answer that then you can sort of tweak on a case by case basis from there? Yeah. I avoid absolutes like the plague because I think they're <laughs> typically not useful. That yeah. said, it's a bit of a paradox. So I'll start with an important distinction. Live players I believe have much more wiggle room to justify different types of plays at the table than online players do. And the reason for that is the live arena lends itself to a interpersonal information exchange, live reads, live tells, as we've come to call them. So typically a good calibrated live player can be, Weighing the scales of a certain decision, where you guys know a lot of decisions in poker are just close. In live, you can use live reads to sort of tip the scales either way. And that's something that still draws me back to that format more than ever now that I'm retired. If I'm going to go play, I'd love to just go play live. Because not only can I meet new people and sort of network, but I can also hone these skills of being like, all right, cool. So like, I don't study as much as I used to but the blank spots get to be filled in by me paying attention to human behavior, which is just a passion of mine. So a really good fit there. So I always start there, which is that we need to separate live and online when we're talking about how to meet someone where they're at with a strategy. Live players, I always say, and even some guys who play online, they split their time playing live. I'm like, you can do your own thing live. I will never interfere because I believe in white magic at the core. I really do, but I don't believe in it in online poker. Not nearly as much, at least. And the reason for that is you lose access to that level of information exchange that you have. So then what it really comes down to is in an online environment, is the player willing to onboard with a system that's probably going to redesign their strategy quite a bit 
But the advantage, like I said, is they're going to be able to get fast, systematic, precise feedback of whether or not they're hitting their targets. That's really the buy-in point of our course. It's like, we're meeting you in the middle here. We have a proven system that we know crushes if the player is willing to follow instruction. There is room for calibrating as you get to higher levels. And there certainly is room for navigating a specific online poker pool. Caveat here, they don't play that differently. From what we found, the trends of all pools are actually somewhat standard and stable. The thing that changes is, are you playing in an anonymous environment where your screen name is not visible? Or are you playing in one where you have to be a little bit more careful about how you present yourself? It's kind of the way I put it. Like when you're playing, you know, an aggressive exploitative strategy, which is what we recommend as our baseline on account of seeing that the data shows the pools have gaping imbalances. Think of this as sort of like a vacuum approach. If we were just going to play one hand for the rest of our life, we would go all out and exploit to the max. But once we add in the fact that we're going to show up to the same game with people who know who we are, we have to learn how to fly more under the radar with how we exploit people. So that's the real art of the strategy for players who play in known environments. But I'm not sure if you guys uh, were aware of this already, that about half of our team plays on Ignition, Bodog, Babata, and that is a semi-anonymous environment where basically you can sit down, play 50 to 100 hands, kind of go as hard as you want within reason, do whatever you want to the table, abuse the table, max exploit the table. And then by the end of your session, it's like you close your tables and the next day starts all fresh again. And nobody really gets this continuous uh, information exchange that they can use to adjust. So roundabout way of answering your question, but I think it builds context around how we sort of make distinctions between different environments. It's really about what level of information exchange is available here to the opponent. We started off with live where it's like live tells is a huge thing. That means you get a lot of more creative freedom to use that. Then we've moved into the, the online environment where it's like, all right, so now we have to separate the anonymous screen name environments from the known screen name environments because they, they incentivize us to monitor our own behavior differently. So that's the fork, basically, is you have your whole live section where it's like, do as you wish, white magic all day, in my opinion. Online, which is if you're playing in a known pool, you got to play closer to balance than you would if you were playing in a pool where people didn't know your screen name, because it's just going to require you to stay more in line. Otherwise, you're vulnerable. Does that answer the question? So you're muted now, Jim. Great. Yeah, no, that was a great answer. Thanks, Nick. So I was just going to kind of follow up on the, the concept of the population tendencies that you talked about, because I think that that's something particularly recreational players don't really understand sure. about human behavior. Um, and particularly with the focus on GTO recently, that oftentimes is removed from the equation, right? There's this, these general ideas of fold too much, you know, bet too much, and you just got to figure out which. But what you're really talking about, if I read your... Um, pamphlet correctly is that you're trying to figure out what the tendencies are that people don't always even understand about their own behavior and pressure situations and being able to understand those variables and then use them effectively in, in developing the strategy. Is, is that a fair characterization? It is. And it's always easier to start just from the most zoomed out perspective. The free ebook that you're mentioning was a chance for me to give an overhead vision of what the poker 
environment as a market looks like from a you know bird's eye view the more we zoom out the more we're able to see with data analysis that the market has certain trends that simply put trend passive when we measure the human behavior of the real player pools versus the solver behavior which we now have the capacity to map and hold them side by side what we consistently find as a common theme is that the solver tends to fight harder for the pot than the human player does and so it leaves you with this macro framework that you're able to work with to say okay in general people are too passive at the poker table people fold too much they don't fight for the pot enough and what that allows you to do is start from a general principle that says so how am i going to gear my strategy in a way that exploits that i talk about risk tolerance enough because i think it's actually probably the most important indicator of a poker player's success if you think about why it might be so important in context of the way the market leans now that we know that aggressive players have a structural advantage just because they're entering a market that trends passive, that should be potentially one of the things that we pre-select for when we're looking for a player who might have a high performance ceiling because it's extremely hard to get a player to overcome the psychological biases that cause them to trend risk averse. This might be one of the, the hardest mindset constraints to overcome. And it's one that I work pretty diligently at to try to remove early on in a player's contract when they come onto our team. It's sort of like, I'm getting better at creating a catalog of concerns that players have presented with before where they're like, this is really why I'm not comfortable putting money into the pot. Or maybe it's this. And we sort of systematically go through break down the rationalizations that are occurring until hopefully there's no concerns left. And then the player has a choice. He's like, wow, my pre-existing framework isn't that logical. I'm avoiding putting money into the pot because I have a cognitive bias that all humans seem to be up against, which is I don't really like losing money. In fact, the pain of losing money is actually greater than the joy of winning it. Mm -hmm. Joe, before we were getting started, you mentioned that you were really interested in uh, behavioral economics. And Patrick, my brother who created most of the pre-existing uh, course methodology for detox, he's an ex-physicist who modeled the course pretty closely after a lot of the information that he found in the book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. I think it's Daniel Kahneman. And a lot of the frameworks that he took, in fact, he just wrote a really brilliant article. Uh, I believe it was called either The Three Pillars of Poker. That's definitely one that touches on the concept I'm addressing here. But also he wrote one on risk aversion. And he found out that like it's really, really hard to feel like you're ever winning in poker because you're constantly putting money in behind if you're playing the pot odds game correctly. It's always that like you're putting money in and it might be profitable, but you're not going to win half the time. That's just the nature of the game that we're in. And so it leaves this impact on the on the mind that makes it feel like we're always losing. And so he's able to basically quantify um, what type of ratio you would need of wins to losses in order to feel like you're actually winning. Okay. And it's it's really interesting to see how that how that maps to a human brain. So he was able to basically say something like, um, 
you know, my risk tolerance is basically once I start losing this amount of pots more frequently than this amount of pots one, or if he converted that into a dollar amount, he'd be like, this feels like I'm losing even when I'm not. So it's really that type of bias that you're trying to combat at the root when you're training a professional poker player. I always start there. I've thought of different frameworks that you can address it in, um, different strokes for different folks, but you have to understand that core principle if you're going to be a good poker player that we are not here to win the pot. And we're certainly not here to try to outguess the opponent each time. We have to arrive at like a fundamental acceptance that doing the right thing on average results in us doing the wrong thing in the moment very often. And this is not something that a lot of poker players have really integrated at a core level. And it's not until you do integrate it fully that you're able to play without this level of risk aversion, this cognitive dissonance that asserts itself as passivity. That's what the market is truly up against. And I don't go there often with that deep of a, of a take because it is a very clinical take mm-hmm. on what we're actually dealing with when we zoom all the way out and look at the behavioral trends of a market. Um, but I think it is consistent with what we know about psychology across the board. And we just happen to see it assert itself in this environment that we call poker. Well, it's an interesting, if I can follow up, just kind of comment on what you said is that, uh, I mean, poker is essentially a math game melded to a psychology game, but it, like you said, it's not reading tells, it's not souls, it's understanding how humans will behave in a variety of settings. And I think to bring it back to the recreational player, because most of the players on the site that are watching here are not going to go on to be able to put in a hundred thousand hands. Um, I've been playing for five years and I'm, I'm nowhere near that. Um, it's very difficult to actually see those improvements over behavior that you get in the long term, in the short term. And all they can see is their, their buy-in for the session going down. Yeah. And, and I think that that is something um something that a recreational poker is going to struggle with. So I guess as a follow-up question, if, you know, if a recreational poker wanted to be a part of your program or to kind of learn these particular aspects, how would they find ways to, in a shorter time span, to see that they're having benefits given using a particular strategy? The realistic answer is you cannot see fast benefits unless you're putting in minimum volume to allow yourself to get statistical feedback. And that, sample size that would be required to get legitimate feedback is more substantial than most players are probably willing to admit a live poker player i mean first of all you guys can't even track your hands so and i'm being realistic here like this is why live will be uh a a different entity and will never really be subject to the same restrictions as online because there is that limitation in the feedback loop where nobody's really able to figure out whether or not they're doing something correctly over a consistent sample. So it's sort of the battle of who can trust their own judgment. It's the Mm -hmm. battle of who can stay consistent without losing their mind over rough stretches. That's really what separates the best live players, in my opinion. It's It's a very logistical focus where it's connected to their mindset, but it's like, I'm just going to show up and do what I think is more or less the basic consistent winning strategy. There's a lot of recreationals that I can get money from in in these games, more so than online. That's my focus. I know my limitations. 
in -hmm. terms of being able to get real reliable feedback. That would be my advice, actually. It's counterintuitive, but you're asking me, how can they speed up the process? By accepting the structural limitations of the model that they're actually in. And then working and then working with what you have, because it isn't that hard to make money off of other recreational players. I tell my poker friends this who have real jobs in Las Vegas, like bartenders and stuff. And they'll constantly ask me, like, you know, what do you think my potential is if I just get off work at go to the Venetian at 1 a.m. and sit? And I'm like, if you play good starting hands while the other people are drinking and splashing it up and you just focus on that. And then you just have your general baseline strategy from there. You will make $20 an hour at one, at one, two, two, five, you could probably make $50 an hour just by doing that. So I always give that type of starting advice to somebody who's like, what's the real potential here? It's like for the live environment you're considering it's discipline. You don't mm-hmm. need a very high level of strategy understanding to be able to go in and execute in a way that performs because there is so much loose recreational messiness going on for lack of a better way of putting it and you're just sort of there collect you almost have your hat out collecting from the rec fund mm-hmm. so i know it's not a satisfying answer for your live players but i'm very um I make a habit of being very to the point with this type of information because you are dealing with the most mature investment industry in the world when you actually map it psychologically. It requires a lot of, it requires a very high capacity to navigate cognitive dissonance over long timelines. We've done our best to shorten those feedback loops with the data-driven method. And still it requires players to have a lot of faith that things are going to turn around and when a stretch is bad and a lot of faith to keep showing up every day and applying themselves consistently. So I won't give any false optimism to the people who are playing poker part-time in a live environment. You guys are probably playing something like 10,000 hands a year max. The range of outcomes that you could experience over that type of sample is immense. And maybe you only are supposed to have you know, 30% of your, you know, 60, 70% of your years that are actually winning 30 to 40% of your years, well, you'll be straight up losing. You're not even doing anything wrong. It's just that type of sample size that restricts your ability to get any type of reliable feedback from the game, let alone reliable earning power. So my advice, don't go into it depending on it. If you're not going to commit to it full time, that's really the most mature advice I can give and just accept the limitations of the model. Yeah, it still makes sense to show up and do your best against players who you think you're better than, but be realistic. I'm just going to step in real quickly and define a term you've used a couple of times, which may not be um, common, which is the concept of cognitive dissonance. Uh, for those of people who are listening who aren't really aware of that term, it's basically the idea that you have this dissonance between something that you're doing and a negative outcome for yourself. And you and the mind wants to really make those equivalent. And it can drive people to make bad decisions in investing and poker playing by causing you to say, well, I must be doing the right thing because I do it so frequently. And uh, solving cognitive dissonance in the sense of being clear about it is going to make you a better player going forward because you're not actually biasing your own and and making negative moves or negative behaviors in order to resolve that discomfort with a particular outcome. So I may be playing well, but I'm losing money. So therefore I need to fix that. So I will play differently in order to change the dissonance, um, which doesn't always work. 
So thanks for the clarification. I need help with that sometimes because I I definitely fly by stuff that needs a deeper look. Sure. So what Jim, I didn't want to did you do we still have time for me to ask one more question? Yeah, of course. Please, please. So one of the things that also was struck to me about was uh, talking about the alpha and the beta um, uh, kind of mindsets for things. And, you know, when you come into poker, particularly as a recreational player, oftentimes it's like a, a naked aggression means, you know, I'm going to uh, show how a big a person I am and I'm just going to muscle everybody underneath the table, which really isn't how aggression is in poker. And to some degree, it felt like you're really talking about fluency. It's like understanding everything, playing a particular strategy so well and so frequently and, and so automatically that you don't actually have to think about it. it. It just, it just becomes a part of, I just keep doing this and I keep doing this and I keep doing this and emotion never comes into it. Is that a fair characterization of what you were saying in your pamphlet uh, about how players should come to the table? Yeah. And I think there's, there's two ways to distinguish that framework. I made it as clear as I could make it that I don't particularly like the associations with the alpha beta framework, I think it's trended toxic in our current uh, culture, but I do think it leads towards some useful classifications of the demeanor of a competitor, which is why I chose to go with it. Um, so two, two distinctions that I would make is like, we could talk about just like the brute force aggression of a player. If we look at their behavioral patterns in poker in terms of frequencies, like if I if I stripped a person of everything that you associate them with and I was just able to show you their database and I could say, look at these frequencies. This is what this player looks like behind the scenes. If you actually strip it all away, I would give, yeah, I would say that there's strong correlation between the alpha demeanor and more aggressive frequencies. They fight for the pop more. This is also putting them closer to alignment with optimal play because we know the solver for lack of a better way of putting it within this framework is quite alpha in terms of how much it fights. Then from there, the other quality that I would say represents an alpha quality to me is the ability to conceptualize time and actually lengthen the time horizon in a way that can align the behavior with something that's more, more mature and consistent in its approach. Oftentimes you hear like the marshmallow test that they give the children to see if they're able to like, delay gratification and it's supposed to be a key performance indicator for uh like investment maturity amongst other things but that's really what we're looking at here is like your ability to conceptualize time and get into harmony with time in a model that the mind really does not want to agree with every step along the way to me that's really what like the alpha trade is and like some people have it and some people don't and the way that you see it manifest the, fr the clinical framework that I've been using to help players lately is like, it came from a psychology talk that I, uh, that I listened to. It might've even just been free Twitter advice for those of you who don't follow psychology stuff on Twitter. There's a lot of great stuff that you can dig into. This particular therapist said something like all good psychology work is just about identifying the zones in which a person is extreme in their belief system and moving it kindly back to a secure zone. And I was like, isn't that such a great first principle to express every single thing that someone is up against when they're getting anxious or neurotic? And you can identify these things happening in poker players, specifically when they're on downswings. It's like they feel like they need to change so much at once. And there's this urgency behind it. And what do I do? Do I change this thing or this thing? 
oftentimes the alpha mindset or the secure mindset is just much more like no big deal. This is just noise. This is variance. We're going to stick with the program. We're, we're secure here. We're not going to overreact. That's really the energy that I feel behind the alpha mindset is like, it's just non-reactive energy. And it really takes that if you're going to play this career long-term in a way that's mature about it and understands the ebb and flow of variance. I think it's probably the, the biggest distinction in uh, separating a high performer from the rest of the pack. So I'm going to let Jim jump right back in. I, I, and again, just because this is kind of the role I was hoping to do in, in rec poker, when you looked at the marshmallow studies, uh, a lot of them were done in, I, I believe it was San Francisco originally, but uh, or maybe it was Stanford. Um, originally, I thought it was a characterological uh, aspect. It was like something built into somebody to be able to put that off. And those studies more recently have been shown to not really hold together very well. And so to your point, the, but not that it's not important, but the ability to do it can be something that can be taught rather than something that's innate to the individual. So. I won't argue with it. I make way more money if that's true. Please let it be true <laughs> that we can train that we can train risk tolerance. <laughs> well, delayed gratification is, is certainly risk tolerance is a risk tolerance is more amygdala. And so people have varying different degrees of that coming out of the womb. And I, I think for some, it can be much harder to mediate that. But psychologists, you know, we, we make our money by, as you said, bringing, uh, moderating that to a degree that is manageable for them. And so if you can teach a player to be, to reduce their anxiety at the table, then they can be more fluent in terms of the strategy that they, and, and, and you know, the A game that everybody talks about. It's a great point. They're actually more connected than they seem to be because by helping them relax, usually you put their nervous system into more regulated states and they can actually increase risk tolerance naturally. So Jason Sue is probably a good connection. You guys had him on recently. And like, that's really where his method overlaps with my performance method. It's just like, how do we work with how you're feeling immediately? Cause we can, you know, stack performance benefits right then and there. No, I love that. Uh, well, Nick, you've been really generous with your time. I've got one more question to, to take it right back to the recreational streets. And then I know um, you're going to offer a, a discount code for our members, our listeners to come and sign up. You've got a new course coming. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, my last question is, so I think, I think, you know, at Rec Poker, we know where we are in the poker world. We're not pros. We're not trying to play professionally. We're not going to be the most experienced player at the table, but we're going to be more thoughtful, more studied, more savvy than a lot of the other recreational players out there because we take it seriously and it's more fun when you win. Um, we've talked before about how, you know, if you're at a table of nine players, there's going to be some players there that are better than you and some that are worse than you and some that you're kind of, uh, equivalent skill, equivalently skilled with. Um, I think people get the sense that they have to be the best player at the table in order to really crush that table. But the truth is, as you've alluded to in the past, that really playing against the worst players is usually your biggest source of profit. You know, the 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 pros they mostly play defense against each other. They're kind mm -hmm. of in a reciprocal trip, chip trading arrangement, um, just because they're neither one's making bigger or more mistakes than the other. Capitalizing on the mistakes that the less uh, experienced players make is a great source of profit. So, I guess my question to you is: as a lot of our listeners are going to be the more recreational players at that spot. What are some of the main problems that they have? Some of the biggest leaks that they have? Like what, what, what are some ways that they can maybe play a little defense at the table when they're playing at, at a table where 
they might feel like some of the players there have an edge on them? Sure. That's a great question. The highest impact advice I could give is to stay in control of your starting requirements pre-flop. There's a joke we have in the, in the company that if recreational players ever started playing good pre-flop ranges, <laughs> we all might be out of a job pretty quickly. <laughs> because if you think about what that does to the rest of the streets, if they were to just start playing sounder from the jump, it fortifies their strategy on every next street because this imbalance that they tend to create pre-flop, which is just to play way too many hands, that bleeds into every next street and it compounds itself. So knowing that if you make sure that you don't start wildly chasing pre-flop hands that you know you shouldn't be playing, you eliminate that leak from occurring in your game. That is probably the biggest edge you have just in terms of a, a sweeping statement, assuming that you have like a baseline understanding of how to navigate post-flop. That's one of the biggest differences right there. And that's the thing I was saying. I tell to my bartender friends, I'm like, just go and play strong starting hands. It's the most reliable thing that you can do. And keep coming back to that word because I think it's really what everyone is looking for when they're at the poker table, whether they're conscious of it or not. It's like, I want the reliable method that's going to make sure that I'm giving myself the best chance to win because it is more fun. So that would be the first thing I would say. Don't even worry about the fact that you know, you're not suited to battle against some of the better regs again take a realistic approach that's what they do for a living they're going to be in there they're more calibrated try to just play your standard game and don't deviate that much it's okay if you find yourself needing to bow out of pots against them it's okay if you're a bit too passive against the best players in the world or the best players at your game because remember they make as much money as they do because they know where to be aggressive and they got really good at it this shouldn't be your objective to your point, Jim, the biggest perspective shift that you can have is that you can be the third best pro at the table, but you can have the highest win rate at the table if you're the best at exploiting the recreational players. And this is something that we got really good at with our method and sort of what we're known for. We have the most profitable recreational protocols in the world because we've scraped the data and said, this is how they behave. Just to give you guys a a, a pretty big takeaway from the data. It's no secret at this point. Um, recreationals, fish, I don't know if it's appropriate to call them that, but we use it sometimes. <laughs> they do a lot of things that they shouldn't do in terms of betting hands that are technically too weak. And I'm not just talking about bluffs. I'm talking about like they'll bet a lot of weak pairs sometimes that should actually just be hands that are checked. So if you look at how that changes your incentives to play against fish, you should be doing a lot less folding when they're betting. You should be defending a lot more pairs on the river when you face bets. It might not come as natural to you to hear this information, but going back to what I said at first, you believe things about poker that are not true until mm. you work with data. So there, I'm not saying this is a universal truth, but there are many parts of the game tree where if you're up against a recreational player, the difference in how you would behave if you were able to see all the data is you would start defending weaker pairs when facing a bet. This is the fundamental principle I can give the users that will provide immediate impact if you actually stay consistent with it. But oftentimes, you know, we all, we hear people say, I did it a few times, it didn't work. And <laughs> it leads to stuff I post on Twitter where I'm joking and I'm like, you know, every six seconds a player gets called by bottom pair and he changes his entire strategy. <laughs> These are the type of things that we have to try to avoid if we're gonna be strong marshmallow competitors. <laughs> That's great.
All right. Well, uh, you've got a new course uh, starting in early January. So I think if, if folks are listening to the show when it comes out, they've got a week or a little a little less than two weeks to get involved. Tell us a little bit about uh, what that course involves and uh, how players can get uh, can get signed up for it and to get more involved with it. Sure. It's a crash course in motivation alongside 30 days of lesson content that are manageable. 30 minutes a day, something to get you rolling in the direction of feeling like you're gaining momentum and actually building your knowledge of the game. We use a data-driven method. It might not be something that most of you are useful are, are used to, but we do see it as very useful in terms of balancing whatever framework you're already using. So we don't really take a uh, strict approach to the camp. It's sort of like view it as menu items uh, ingredients almost that you can add to your menu if they feel like they resonate. We stacked it with guarantees so you don't even have to make a decision. Just get in there with the guarantee, make a decision once you're inside and you see everything that we're working with. Um, and then if you end up liking it, we have opportunities for you guys to join on with longer private contracts. CFP coaching for profits is what that's there for. It's the highest performing players from our camp will end up getting offers to upsign to those types of private contracts if that's your flavor. So I'm going to give you guys a bonus code if you want to check it out. I'll also give Jim the link to the 30-day training site so you can see it. Uh, we'll use balance as the bonus code. That camp is closing doors on January 7th. So you got to get in by then if you want to make it into the next flight. Otherwise, we won't be doing another one until springtime. Just want to say thanks, guys, for giving me a chance to to elaborate on some of this stuff. I know it can be a bit heavy with all the science involved, but I really appreciate Joe being able to be here and kind of like slow me down and and deconstruct a lot of it. Yeah, it's it was great. We've, the one of the things I love about the Wrecking Crew is we've we've all had the success in other parts of our lives, and we get to bring that mindset into the poker world. This this game that we all love so much. Uh, Joe, do you have any parting thoughts before we let uh, Nick roll on out of here? No, I just wanted to say thanks for letting me kind of pepper you with some questions and get into the weed <laughs> a little bit about this stuff because um, I, I think it's pretty interesting. I hope that the rest of the rec nation does as well. Anytime. Well, Nick, thanks, Joe. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, folks, if you're listening and you want to uh, get involved, you can use the code BALANCE uh, to get signed up by January 7th, and I'll include that and the link in the show notes here. Um, Nick, if if Twitter still exists in 2023, is that the best place for people just to look you up personally, or how do you like people to say hello and uh, to, to tug your ear? Yeah, get on Twitter and message me there if you want to talk about um, any type of ideas around your career. I'm always open to a discussion. And other than that, get subscribed to my newsletter. I'll give you that link too, Jim. Just a ton of free content and only members of my newsletter get access to the free webinars that I do every month. That's a space where you can just pop in and be like, here's my biggest career question. And we just go straight to the root. Um, it's actually my favorite format right now. And it's it's a really fun time. So check it out. All right. Well, Nick, I hope uh, 2023 is a great year for you. And um, I hope we get a chance to talk again real soon. Thank you again for coming on the show today. Thanks, guys. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, man. Take care. All right. Well, I know um, we've been looking forward to that one for a while. Nick was kind enough to come and share some time. Um, we did record this one just before the holidays. So uh, like I say, if you're listening to this on December 30th, I want to just uh, say Happy New Year to all of Rec Poker who's out there listening. It has been a crazy year, Joe. 
Uh, I don't know what your year has been like, but it has been a crazy year for rec poker. It's been a crazy year for me in my own personal life. Um, lots of highs and lows all over the place. I won't list them out here, but there have been some peaks and valleys. I can't wait for just the slow, steady incline that 2023 has in store for us, I'm sure. Um, looking back right now, I I'm so proud we just passed our 1,000th member at Rec Poker, or just uh, at the time of this recording, I think 1,001 people have signed up, which is uh, pretty mind-blowing. That's pretty crazy to think that over 1,000 people have come on up and signed up for a free community account at Rec Doc Poker. They're enjoying the home games, the podcast, the forums, the Discord channel, the free videos on YouTube, all the great stuff that we do there. And I know, uh, like yourself, some of them have gotten more involved and dipped a toe into the premium membership and uh, found that they've got a role on the Wrecking Crew, a place to come and uh, and help the rest of the poker world kind of explore their own love of this game. Um, so that's just something I'm really proud of. And I'm grateful to you and the other members of the Wrecking Crew, Joe, for coming and doing this along uh, with the rest of us every week. Because Lord knows it takes, as I'm fond of saying, it takes, uh, it takes a village around here. Um, Joe, since it's just you and me left, I guess I'll ask you the last question of the year. In your professional opinion, uh -oh. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? See, I don't think that's actually the real question. I'll oh. I'll say that I'll say that it is. The real question is always: Is the Nightmare Before Christmas a true oh. a true Christmas movie or a Halloween movie? But that creates even more anger than the first. <laughs> <one>. so, <laughs> I like that though. That's a really good take on that. All right. Well, that's something we can we're gonna have all we're gonna have about eleven months to get to the bottom of that. And then I'm going to ask all our listeners to start thinking about that. And we'll get back into that in uh, Christmas time, 2023. Uh, that'll be worthy, uh, a worthy question for the panel when the time comes around again. Well, then without further ado, I just have to thank our uh, sponsors, the Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino. Um, I want to thank Nick Howard for a great show. Uh, Joe Cool for joining us here on the podcast tonight. Everyone else on the Wrecking Crew, all our premium members, and you, the audience. Thank you so much for your support. See you next year. Ha, 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 ha.